You're listening to. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. With Don Sarah. With Don Sarah. Thanks. Bye. Hey you, welcome to this week's episode of Sex Gets Real. I am going to be fielding a few listener questions, uh, one or two at the beginning, and then one at the end, and in between is a short 30-ish minute interview with Julia Callahan from Rare Bird Books. They publish books about sex and by sex workers and they put out Danny Wilde's books and uh, this amazing book called Spent by um, Antonia Crane and so I wanted to have someone from them on the show to talk about why it's so important to them to publish books by marginalized voices so we've got a little conversation in between listener questions for you this week. I also just kind of want to bring up, if you haven't seen Big Mouth on Netflix yet, I just started watching it. It came out, it was released at the end of September. So for those of you who are up on pop culture and television shows, you're probably way ahead of me. Um, But I just started watching it. And the first thing I want to say is it's, it's absurd. Like it is completely absurd. And... I know often cartoons are meant to be absurd when they're for adults, but for the absurdity, which I'm still trying to decide if I like, (laughs) uh, there's a lot about the show that I'm enjoying. And the, the purpose of the show is basically puberty. And so they brought a whole bunch of comedians together. You'll recognize a whole bunch of the names. Um, Nick Kroll and Fred Armistad and Jordan Peele. And the writers all kind of came together and sat in a room and talked about their worst puberty experiences and what it was like for them. And they had this really vulnerable, awkward kind of conversation around the table talking about um, one of the guys said he was slow dancing with a girl in middle school and came in his pants and talking about getting your period for the first time in a public place Uh, your friends developing before you and so feeling like you're really inadequate and dealing with hormones and the whole show is built around the awkwardness of puberty of course told through very adult humor but um, you know for kind of some of the intentional shock of the show there are definitely some really really wonderful moments that are just so real about our bodies and questioning our sexuality and having to ask for help when something happens to us like bleeding through our pants for the first time or coming in our pants at a school dance um And there's lots of genitals and lots of very, very inappropriate jokes. So if that sounds like something that might be interesting to you, then I recommend you check out Big Mouth on Netflix just to see what you think. I'm only three episodes in of 10, so I may change my mind depending on what happens. But um, yeah, and, and certainly there's some 
problematic issues with it. But um, for a show that's dealing with puberty, it it has some some things that I've never seen before. So I I'm rather enjoying those little surprises. Okay, so I got a email from someone named Cadessa. Here's what the email says. I thought it was really sweet. It says, hi, Dawn. I found your podcast on Spotify and have been binge listening like crazy. I started with the first episode and I'm currently up to episode 87. Let me tell you, your podcast has opened a whole new world for me. I have been married for almost a year and have been with my husband for almost seven in total. When we first started dating, I was a virgin, but I knew my tastes were not conventional. I have always been into the dom-sub dynamic and love the idea of being completely at the mercy of a dominant. I brought the bondage piece up to my boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband, fairly early into the relationship, but it never got further than a pair of handcuffs, a dildo, and a blindfold. Don't get me wrong, I enjoyed the shit out of it, but I wanted more. We played once or twice and then never did it again. After a while, we fell into the terrible stereotype of the nearly sexist relationship. We maybe had sex three or four times in a year. I love this man with all my heart, and we always enjoy our time spent together. But looking back on it now, it felt horrible. I then then began to deal with a lot of anxiety and got treatment for chronic depression. So I finally started to feel horny again. I dropped hints here and there, but my super sweet and supportive husband was trying to take it slow and wait for me to be ready for sex again. I'm such a lucky lady. Attempt after attempt, and I still wasn't getting any. I then discovered your podcast and your gentle encouragement to have tough conversations really motivated me to discuss these issues with my husband. And let me tell you, things got steamy fast. I feel like I'm in a new relationship again, and I feel loved and supported. My husband is very vanilla, and I'm pretty kinky. But we're starting to find our middle ground. I've been giving him surprise blowjobs again, his favorite thing ever, and he's been learning rope play techniques. It's amazing, and I am so happy. I was so afraid that he would think I'm weird or unsexy because I like to be tied up and forced to orgasm, but he is taking it, taking to it like a fish to water. And it all started with sex gets real. Thank you for helping me to put the spark back into our sex life and for helping me ditch my sexual shame that I've had to deal with for 20 plus years. Love, Cadessa. P.S. My husband even said he would attend Bondage Expo Dallas with me. How cool is that? Oh, my God. (laughs) Thank you so much for writing in, Cadessa. And thank you. Thank you for being so brave for yourself and for taking that risk and then having it received with love. And now the two of you are creating this amazing opportunity and space to try new things. I hope that if ever you reach another point where you feel disconnected, that you're willing to take that risk again, because it might pay off just as beautifully. And thank you so much for writing in and letting me know all of this. I love hearing from all of you and the things that you're getting up to and the ways that you're changing. And 
Speaking of, I'm going to be having an online class around tough conversations and communication and relationships coming up. So actually stay tuned for that. It'll be something you can just take online whenever you want, um, you know, from home in your PJs. Um, Because so many of your questions that I'm constantly getting are about how to say the scary thing. And or actually most of the questions are, how can I not say the scary thing but still get the thing I want? which isn't going to happen. So, uh, you know, a lot of my answers are about how to say the scary thing. And I'm going to offer a little class that just gives everyone some opportunities for thinking about communication in new ways and practicing. So stay tuned for that. I also just want to offer an update. If you follow me on Twitter, you may have seen that the other day I was frantically looking for my magic wand vibrator. I could not find that thing anywhere. And how I could lose or not find something that enormous. It's like the size of a huge thermos, right? Like, I don't know. I searched every drawer where it normally is, our nightstands under the bed, between the mattresses, the bathroom. I don't know, about a half an hour. And then I posted on Twitter that I was freaking out because I couldn't find it. I actually had to wait for Alex to get home to help me search. And I found it tucked in a trunk in the guest bedroom that I guess we had um, hid when we had his folks over. And so thankfully it was found. But also then my interest in using it had completely gone away because I was so freaked out about where it had gone (laughs) because it's one of my favorites. So just a little update, it has been found. I have updated the Patreon rewards a little bit just to make them more interactive for us and um, to make it easier for me to deliver the things because I want to make sure that we're all feeling fun and and enjoying the supportive relationship for those of you who offer me support on Patreon. And one of the rewards now is you can actually weigh in with your advice on listener questions that I get. I post them anonymously. There's no names or information And I posted a question a few weeks ago that got some input from one of you. And so I'm going to read the question and then I'm going to share the advice that came from one of the Patreon supporters and then weigh in myself. So if you want to be playing sexpert, um, you can support the show at $5 a month and that gets you access to helping me actually answer a lot of these big juicy questions that I get. And I think people are surprised at at how deep some of the questions are, and some of them are really tough to answer. So um, it might be fun if that's your jam to check out. So here's the email. Hi, Dawn. I've been listening for a long time, and I often hear you or your guests talking about how important in long-term monogamous relationships it is to not let resentment build up. Well, I sure have been trying, but I'm hitting a brick wall. I've been with my girlfriend for five years. Three of those years, we've lived together. When we met, my girlfriend's house was always extremely messy and dirty. 
She seemed embarrassed by this and always gushed about how tidy and clean mine was. It was just normal, in my opinion. We moved in together, and I ended up doing most of the chores. We both worked full-time, and because I was used to living alone and cleaning up a house, it was fine. The past year, she has changed jobs, where she now works much less, and I have picked up another job, working usually seven days. My girlfriend continues to do zero housework, clean up after herself, and will rather starve than cook herself a meal. I've spoken to her about this, and she claims she does do housework or that she didn't have any time to do anything. I then told her we would have to get a house cleaner, and I would happily pay for this, as I couldn't keep on top of the chores. She massively protested and insisted she would do more. She did for a few weeks, then back to nothing. I then thought maybe she just doesn't notice the mess, So before I would leave for work in the morning, if I knew she'd be at home all day, I would ask if she had time to vacuum the house or put a load of wash in and that it would be so great if she could do it. This led to me getting home without these things being done. And as soon as I mentioned it, she'd insist she was just about to do it. All this has led to a great deal of resentment towards her. I don't want to have sex because I feel like she takes me for granted. We talk about it a lot and nothing has changed. I don't know what else to do. Everything else about her is perfect. I have even suggested we aren't suitable to live together and to continue dating, but not cohabit. She declared if that happened, we couldn't date anymore and our relationship would be over. Am I the bad guy here? Have I let this turn into a problem when really there isn't one at all and I should just relax about it? I'm not asking for an immaculate living house, but if I go away for work or out with friends for a week, then when I return, the washing I hung before leaving would still be up drying, the cat litter would be filthy, and the dirty dishes would still be by the bed. Well, you get the picture. How can I resolve this? Because I'm starting to think this could destroy our relationship. I want to thank you for writing in. I know there are so many people listening who are in similar situations, and I know I have been there myself in the past more than once in relationship. So you are not alone in navigating this disconnect. So Steph, who is one of the Patreon supporters, weighed in and said, I'm going to have to say, get the housekeeper. Your needs aren't being met, so an uncomfortable conversation about what you need, i.e. a tidy space, has to occur. You probably aren't with her for her cleaning abilities, so it's okay to get help from elsewhere, but a conversation about this not being judgment also has to happen. So thank you so much for that, Steph. One of the things that that really stood out to me about your email was that You have been with your girlfriend for five years, you've been living together for three, and when you met your girlfriend, her house was always extremely messy and dirty. This is kind of one of those things that Dan Savage calls the price of admission, right? Like, you knew going in that you were dating somebody who was messy and dirty. So it's not a surprise that now that you're living together, they're still messy and dirty. So 
there was a piece of the story that maybe didn't seem important at the time or didn't seem like it would be a really big deal at the time and now has become a big deal. And that happens to all of us in so many different ways. I mean, new relationship energy especially makes us kind of bananas around things like this where we think, oh, that doesn't bother me. It's different, but it'll be fine. And then as all those chemicals start wearing off, we start realizing this actually really does bother me. <laughs> and also as life circumstances change, something that used to not be a big deal becomes a big deal, often because we see it is causing inequity or um, because it's becoming really clear that there's some type of mismatch. So first, I just want to say your girlfriend hasn't changed from what I'm seeing. She's still the same person. It's that the circumstances have changed. And so it makes it seem like a, a bigger pain point now. I agree with Steph that getting a person to come over and help with the cleaning is critical. Working with your partner around your needs is important to having a relationship that thrives, I think, over the long term. But because of how things are right now, with you working so much, seven days a week, and her not really getting and or um, committing to helping with those things, then getting someone to help you around the house is a really, really great compromise. But I don't think that that's the only thing you should do. Steph also mentioned having that conversation. I'm wondering if it would be helpful if you worked with a coach, a relationship coach for a session or two, or um, a therapist for a couple of sessions, just to help the two of you have some conversations around this, around how it's making you feel and why it's important to you. Because the bottom line is, when we are in relationship, the emotional labor that's happening often goes unrecognized. And that's exactly the place where a lot of these resentments build up and finding ways to actually connect and communicate around them openly. Right. It's like Steph said exactly the right thing of that. I think <laughs> others might disagree, but Steph said, you know, like this isn't about shaming your girlfriend, but it's about making it clear that like these things do have to get done. I mean, you can live in a certain amount of chaos and filth and mess, but at some point a few dishes have to get washed, like at a bare minimum so that you can eat food and it might become a financial strain on you if your girlfriend's constantly eating out instead of making herself a meal. And, you know, laundry has to get done at some point, you know, in some way. It, the frequency might be totally different for the two of you. You might do laundry every other day and she can maybe go without it for several weeks because she might rewear the same things a couple of times. And like one isn't better than the other. They're just different. But at some point, some of these things have to happen. And so I think just kind of connecting around the why is really helpful. Like, why is it important to you? What does it offer you? 
And why is it not important to her? Or why does it have a different type of importance to her? That might help the two of you connect a little bit around the driving forces and the values and give you a new way to talk about the conversation. I also think just like naming the resentment, which is probably coming from the unrecognized labor and and the fact that this is not being treated as an equal relationship, right? There's an element of like caretaking or parental treatment that's happening in this relationship. And that is one of the least sexy things in the world. And this happens in lots of relationships where one person waits to be asked to do something and waits to be reminded to do something that kind of behavior is very much about like parental dynamics and it's super toxic to the erotic and to sex and the person that's having to do the reminding, the person that's having to ask oftentimes sees a total drop in their libido for exactly the reason that you're naming. And so that also has to be part of the discussion, right? Of like, my job in this relationship is to appreciate you and to connect with you and to support you and to be there for you, but it's not to keep track of you and to make sure the basic things that have to happen in a household get done because I have to ask or remind you. Like, that's just shitty. And that's the emotional labor. And so I think maybe getting some help around having that conversation so that it's really productive could be a really good idea. And also get that housekeeper, right? Just start there so that that load is lifted from you. If you get a housekeeper and if this stays the same and it never changes, can you let go of those feelings of resentment and frustration and just accept this is one of those things? Because in every relationship, you're going to have at least one, probably several of this is just one of those things. You know, the Gottmans say that 69% of conflicts in long-term relationships are unresolvable. So this might be one of your unresolvables. If it's unresolvable forever, can you still find joy and happiness and love and focus on all the things that feel amazing? If so, then start working on what you can do to just help release some of those feelings. But if this is really important to you and you really do feel like you're caretaking, you feel like a parental unit, (laughs) then you probably have to have some conversations, like some real conversations around how you're feeling. Like I'm feeling devalued. I'm feeling taken advantage of. I'm feeling like the labor I put in isn't recognized for the labor that it is. And I would really love to have a conversation with you about how we can start doing things differently so that I feel a little bit more seen and supported and see where things go. Ultimately, your girlfriend's going to have to choose whether or not that's something she can do. And if it's not something that she can do, then you have to decide if you want to stay. So it's a complicated place to be. And ultimately, each of us has to decide, is this labor we want to do? Because there's probably people out there that you can partner with who are happy to do equal labor around the house. And, you know, Alex is that way now. And my previous two partners did not help around the house. They didn't 
help with food. They didn't, you know, I mean, I was doing full-time job, making the money for the household and doing probably 75 or 80% of the work around the house and remembering to pay the bills. And it was exhausting. And I felt like a caretaker and the sex died and the resentment built up. And I didn't have the tools that I have now to be able to navigate those spaces. And so they did contribute to those relationships ending. And now I'm in a relationship with someone who is so committed to contributing and to making sure my emotional labor is reduced. Um, You know, I never have to ask for things to get done or we both kind of ask each other in little ways around little things. So you can find people like that, but that same person that does the housework might not offer you things that your current girlfriend does that you really love. So just sit in it. You probably know the answer. It's deep in your gut. Um, We often know what the answer is and we struggle because that answer might scare us. So sit with it and do what you need to do in the short term to just give yourself some relief and then play in that space. So thank you so much for writing in. Um, For all of you, if you want to be able to weigh in the way that Steph did, you can go to patreon.com slash sex gets real to support the show. I am going to play Julia Callahan's interview from Rare Bird Lit. And then at the end, I have a very complicated question about cheating. Welcome to Sex Gets Real, Julia. I'm really excited to have you here and talk all about books. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're so welcome. So I found out about you and Rare Bird uh, because I was looking for really awesome books that were being published in the areas of like sex and sex work. And the books that you have been putting out are so up my alley, and I've got a whole bunch of titles I want to share with the listeners, but um, you were so generous in connecting me with some of your authors and giving me a chance to check out some of the books, and so I'd love it if we could just start a little bit with, um, you've published, I mean, just on my list, I have six different books by sex workers, and I'd love to know, like, what is it about publishing stories by sex workers that Rare Bird really enjoys. Sure. Well, yeah, the, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, our second book that we ever published as a company was Girlvert, a porno memoir by Oriana Small. Um, so that's a sex work book. And, um, you know, I think for us, uh, Tyson Cornell, who's my boss and owns the company. And I, I was, as they say in tech, I was employee one. Um, I, um, I think for us, you know, I worked for him at a different company, which is why I work here now. But, um, I, I think for us, what we really liked was hearing those voices in their own words. What we loved about, you know, I should back up. We, Tyson and I used to run the events department at book soup bookstore in West Hollywood. And we had a lot of events with porn stars, with, um, you know, sex workers of all kinds. Um, so we were constantly working with people like Nina Hartley and like Ron Jeremy, and we did Jenna Jameson's book and Tara Patrick's book. And we did the events for all those books. And as much as I love a lot of those books, what we really found is that when those authors were going into big five publishing, um, and I understand why they do it because big five publishing pays a lot of money. Um, and I totally am 
into that like you know get your money if you're going into big five publishing (laughs) but um (laughs) but what we sort of felt was that they censored some of the materials so um Ori came to us and she said, you know, I got this offer, but they really want to take a lot of the stuff out that I like. And we said, we had, we really, like, she took a huge gamble on us um, as well. You know, like we had published one other book and she was like, would you consider publishing my book? And we were like, yes, please. We would love Mm -hmm. to. And basically our thing was like, we're going to edit it. We're going to make sure you don't sound you know, like there's not typos and you don't sound stupid. Um, cause she's not, she's fucking amazing. Um, but like, Oh, sorry. Can I cuss on this? Oh yes, you can. Okay. <laughs> sorry. It just, <laughs> it, just, it just comes out. Um, but so she's so amazing. And like, you know, we said, you know, we're not going to edit anything out. We're not going to censor any part of it. So, you know, Girlvert really is, um, and it, Girlvert has since become really a classic of the genre. And we've talked to a lot of people, who are in the adult film industry now. And they're like, yeah, that's the book. Um, you know, that's the book that says what porn is really like to be in. And, and we're really proud of that distinction. Um, and so, you know, we just, because of that, a lot of people started coming to us and those were stories that we were like, we're happy to not censor your stories. Um, and I think that was like the big thing that people really liked about or have liked about working with us is that like, we're going to edit you. I mean, we're, we're publishers, that's our job, but we're not going to censor anything. So we're not going to say like, this is too much, or like, we don't want you to say this. We're going to be like, okay, you know, you, I, you named this guy something in one page and named him something different in another page. We need to fix that. You know, that's like our job. Our job isn't to tell you what you can and can't say. So really, yeah, that's why we've, that's how we started doing it. And why we've kept doing it is because we think they're great stories. Um, They're fascinating. Uh, When you get, I mean, another favorite of mine is Spent by Antonia Crane. Yeah. And she's, yeah, and she's, uh, she's a phenomenal writer. Um, I mean, she has an MFA and like teaches writing, but like, you know, she also is a stripper and has worked, you know, on and off in, um, escorting and in certain you know areas of prostitution and stuff like that and Mm -hmm. she's I I mean listening to her that book like there's a part of that book that I like broke down in tears in yeah and you know the fact that you're busting through those stereotypes like of you know like I mean there's like the first part of me reacts to like oh my god this like book by this stripper made me cry and then I'm like of course it did why wouldn't it she's a great writer she has a great story you know and so busting through those stereotypes of like you know that people in sex work are I mean it sounds insane for me to say this out loud right now but that people in sex work are fully formed humans that have feelings and emotions and you know interesting stories to tell that are sometimes about their work but also are sometimes just about their lives I mean that's what I love about Antonia's book so much is it's like it's about her mom you know (laughs) and like yeah she she was a stripper and she has an interesting story to tell or she still is a stripper and she has an interesting story to tell and, you know, she owns her, her job and she, you know, she does it and she owns what it means to her. Um, but, but, you know, she, her, the way that she writes her relationship with her mother is like, uh, I don't know, is I've never read anything like it. 
And so yeah. why, I would be an insane publisher if I didn't publish something like that, you know? Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things that's just so refreshing is here we have all of these voices from the people who have these lived experiences actually telling their own stories instead of people either speaking for them or, you know, people making up characters about sex workers who have no experience in sex work. And so everything they write is just a stereotype. And, you know, I think you're so right. Like, Spent is amazing. And, um, and then Christopher Zyshek, uh, who's, yeah, who's known as Danny Wilde and the yeah. wolves that live in skin and space. And then we've had um, Madison Young on the show, and I know you published Daddy, a memoir. Yeah. And we're huge fans of April Flores on the show. And I know Carlos Batts published his book, Fat Girl, with you guys. Yeah. And so, you know, there's just something really refreshing in in having these uncensored stories and conversations with people that have lived experiences that are normally spoken for and or silenced in our world. Yeah, and like April's book, I, I just like... I, April and Carlos, their book. I mean, first of all, to be involved in, you know, that was the last book that Carlos did before he died. And, yeah. you know, to be involved in that and to be able to put this out. And that book meant so much to him, I know. Um, and it was really their book. Um, it is really their book. And and that's just such a privilege, A, to be able to do that. Um, but also when I was reading, I remember, so this was like, that book came out, we were really, really small still, um, our company. And I was here at the office. I'm sitting in my office right now. I was here at the office at like nine or 10 PM and Carlos and April came in. I was working on something else and I didn't know they were coming in and they came in, um, to meet with my boss. And he was like, come look at all these photos. And we were going through all the photos and April was telling me her story, and I was just like, because my boss acquired that book and then sort of I get, I, I'm the director of sales and marketing. So I sort of come in after the acquisitions process happens um, a lot of the times. I mean, I acquire some things, but, you know, usually I'm like, okay, this is what I have to work on now. So I was like, okay, this is what we're doing. Great. And she started telling me her her story and talking about, you know, being a fat woman in porn and like how really porn was what made her comfortable in her own skin and doing this work was what made her comfortable. And I'm a, I understand people can't see me. I am a fat woman. And, um, like just reading her, I just, I felt such a deep, even though I don't do sex work, I never have done sex work. You know, I, I did, I went the, the non-sex work route, but you know, like I, having that connection with someone and like, you know, I didn't need to be pushed to see quote unquote, see sex workers as people, um, which I think a lot of people do need to be pushed mm -hmm. to that in our, our culture, unfortunately, but to just really have that connection, you know, and, and realize that like other people were going to have that connection too. Um, and realize that like, if it's my job to get that book into people's hands and if I could get it into the right people's hands, they could really, you know, have a, a touchstone, even though it's a photo book of, you know, this person who's naked and having sex a lot of the times that like, you know, that still is a touchstone. And it's my favorite book to bring to um, book festivals. 
because people I just like love watching people open it because they like look at the cover and the cover's sort of racy and it says fat girl on it and you know she's got a very large bust and it's coming out on the cover and then they open it and you just see people all of a sudden like sink into it and are like this is amazing I sell that book I sell it at festivals like it's the one I always sell out of um and it's just like such an, an awesome sort of experience to watch people. They sort of come to it, I think, a little uncomfortably and maybe even a little mockingly. And then mm-hmm. they look at it and they're like, oh, my God. And then they buy it. You know, oh, <laughs> it's like, that's amazing. it's so great. That's so it's like my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing to watch that. And just to see people have that connection. And then sometimes people are like, well, she's not that bad. And then they it. it And then they kind of, when they start looking at it, they're like, oh, but it's so beautiful. And she's so beautiful. And like this whole thing that's going on is so wonderful. And they read the essays and she's so open in those essays. And I think it's just like, it's one of those things where really it starts discussions, but it also really like opens people up. And I, that kind of thing, you know, it's hard to do with other kinds of photography books. Um, You know, it does it in a way that other things can't do. So... Yeah, and, like, that just makes me so happy, right? Because I think we have so many stories that aren't being told in the world or the stories that are being told or are very, very narrow and controlled. And so to have this, you know, well, I mean, just to talk about April and Carlos, to have this book of, you know, this fat-bodied woman who's just unapologetically being seen and letting herself be seen in these very sexual places is such... It's such a place where we need more of that because it's so permission granting, one, to, to, to actually just even look at it, and two, to feel like, well, maybe if I'm in a fat body, which I am too, you know, maybe it's okay to be sexy and sexualized and wanted in that way. And like that to me is just like this great, big, delicious permission slip. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's how, you know, I look at that book. And actually, funny thing about that book is that we couldn't get it printed anywhere. We had to, we eventually had to go to Europe to get it printed to Italy because um, printers in the Americas uh, all started as Bible printers. So they're, (laughs) they're they're fairly, um, you know, they don't mind printing our, our, the, like the memoirs and stuff like that. But because of the photography, uh, we had to go to Europe to get it. I had to call Tasha and I was like, where do you guys get your sex books printed? Because we're having a real trouble. So we actually, yeah, that one sent us on like kind of a wild goose chase. We learned a lot from that book. But, um, but, you know, I think for me, that was so, it was so freeing to see that and to, and I mean, like just, I mean, to, to just give props to my boss Tyson, you know, he's a straight white guy. Um, and you know, he's, you know, tall and thin and, and so I, you know, for me, like just having someone who sees that, sees that book and says, yes, we want to do it and is excited about Mm -hmm. it and puts money into it and puts things behind it. I mean, that just like, as an employee, I have to say, makes me feel so supported, um, in going out and finding other stuff that, that is, um, you know that maybe other publishers wouldn't take on. So. 
So I'd love to talk about that a little bit because, yeah. you know, I've had numerous sex workers on the show and a whole bunch of what I also talk about on the show includes things like um, queer visibility and trans visibility and centering people of color and marginalized voices and intersectionality. And I know that a big part of Rare Bird and the books that you do is not only sex workers, but really amplifying a lot of those stories that go untold and unheard by major publishing houses like out of New York. And so for anyone listening, I've got tons of sex educators and erotica writers and all kinds of people who listen to the show. You know, for someone who maybe has a dream of publishing but feels like maybe their story or their voice is just too niche or too different, do you have any suggestions or words of wisdom for kind of people who are like, I wish I could tell my story? Yeah. I mean, you know, there are other publishers, there there's us and other publishers like us who are looking for that kind of stuff. And, you know, are, um, I mean, I, you know, I don't get to acquire that much. I acquire about four books a year because I, I, my job is as director of sales and marketing. So I have to really like, carve out time to in order to edit books so I, I don't do a ton of it but we we um you know we definitely gear towards particularly queer stories and um you know sex work and things like that like those are places that we really feel comfortable in and you know a lot of our office is queer made up of queer people and you know we that's that's where that's a good where we like to live, but there are other publishers who do all sorts of things. They're probably just not big five publishers. And by that, I mean the big corporate New York publishing houses. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it can be frustrating um, to have to like sift through the internet about it. But um, one of the things that I recommend is if there are books that you love um, looking that are in that genre, looking at who is publishing those books and going to them um you know sometimes submissions are you know hard or whatever but like um it is definitely possible to do it and Cleus Press does some great great work with um erotica and things like that but um yeah. but you know I think it's just finding finding the editor that's gonna be um really receptive, you know, and, and going for them. Um, and so, and that's, that is, I'm like, I say it so easily, but that is a long, arduous process. And I absolutely know that. Um, it is, it is, a, it is, can be a really frustrating process. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, one of the books that I'm thinking of that I, I acquired is, um, a novel. It's by a woman named Erin Judge. Um, and it's, features a plus-sized bisexual protagonist and it's you know part sort of there's like some sexiness in it it's a little bit of romance um but it's really about just a woman trying to figure herself out and her life out um and really take ownership of her life and I found that one because a friend of ours recommended she send that her agent send that book to us and I, you know, they gave me a good pitch and I was like, yeah, I'll check it out. And it, you know, it took me forever to read it because it always takes me forever to read anything. <laughs> and then, which I feel terrible about <laughs> always, I constantly feel guilty about, but, um, I read it in one sitting, you know, once I sat down and read it, I read it in one sitting. Um, mm -hmm. and I was like, I, I can't, I cannot not publish this book. Um, and it like just won a, a book award for best novel at the bisexual book awards. Um, so, you oh, know, cool. the, 
Yeah. So I know it was awesome. So those are the kinds of things for me, like, you know, my, I mean, it was a perfect fit, you know, for me, it was exactly my taste. Um, it was a little bit funny. It was a little bit, it was, you know, it, it featured a plus size woman. It featured a bisexual woman. It featured someone who was struggling with identity, but not her sexuality. Um, and I was like, done, sold. You know what I mean? So, so the fact that she was able to find someone like me who was like, yeah, this is my jam. Um, you know, she had been rejected by a lot of people before that. And finally, it came to the right person. So, I, I mean, my biggest advice is just hang in there. Know where you're pitching and hang in there. Um, and eventually, it, it definitely, you can find someone. I'm wondering, like, do you have any other books that are coming out in the next, you know, 18 months or so that you're super excited about that feature either queer voices or trans voices or um, feature sex workers that listeners might be interested in? Definitely. Um, we're actually talking, we sort of like our actual sex workbooks, we, we don't have one coming out soon. So we're working on finding um, something, you know, something new that we can bring out um, for that, which I'm, I'm, if Ori's listening to this, I apologize, but I'm really trying to get her to write her follow up um, to Girl Bird. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, we, um, so she has a great, I'm not going to give away the idea, but she has a really great idea percolating that I just cannot wait to publish. Um, but uh, we just had a book come out like last week called Identity. Um, and it's a photo book and essays by, the photos are by Dave Naz, who's Oriana Small's husband. And Dave is a porn director and photographer. Um, and, and then essays by various people. Um, and it is gender identity. He's been working on this book for, or he's been working on this project for eight years. We did um, wow. a previous photo book with him called Gender Queer and Other Gender Identities, which is also photos with essays. Um, and, and some of the people in there are people you'll recognize, Jizzly, you know, gender nonconforming um, adult film stars like Jizzly and, um, uh, God, I'm going to just forget everyone's name now, um, Buck Angel, and, uh, <laughs> and there's a bunch of people. They're awesome. And so his Gender Queer and Other Gender Identities came out in 2015, and it is color, full color photos, and it's, you know, um, people who live outside of the gender binary. So tr gender queer, um, you know, gender nonconforming people. Um, mm -hmm. And it's photos. And, and they're gorgeous photos. Dave is a phenomenal photographer. They're gorgeous. And then Identity that just came out last week is a black and white photo book. Um, and it is similar. Uh, people who don't fit within the gender binary as well. And just like essays grappling with what gender identity means and what gender performance means and how people perform gender and things like that so those two i think are really wonderful um oh, those sound amazing yeah i feel like we they they haven't got enough um sort of like people like when they see them they're like oh my god this is amazing but i just like it's been tough to get them out there a little bit um mm -hmm. but they are they're awesome books and the essays in them are about how gender performance work in gender queer it's really people talking about their own gender performance and how they perform gender differently on day to day based on how they feel um and you know how their gender performance has like um 
evolved over the years and things like that. And then in identity, it's a little bit more about, um, about their, the actual identity and how they identify and how they look at that. Um, so it's good. They're both good. So those are the two that I'm like really excited about, or the identity is the one that just came out that I'm super excited about. Um, and then I've got some, I've got queer, I've got a lot of queer novels coming out. Lucy Jane Bledsoe, um, who's a queer novelist uh, in, in the Bay Area. She's got a book coming out um, in May of 2018 called The Evolution of Love, which is really like awesome, almost sort of bordering on dystopian um, about an earthquake that um, cuts off the Bay Area. And these people sort of have oh. to survive. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So I've got all sorts of things. Um, queer, queer books coming out and out already that, uh, you know, that's sort of what in my editorial, that's a lot of times what I find myself gravitating, gravitating towards. So, mm -hmm. um, so we, we do a fair amount of those. Well, I know we have loads of queer listeners and lots of folks who are grappling with all different kinds of identity questions. So I love that um, you're publishing these books and getting them out into the world and that people can look for them. I will have links to all of these books on the Rare Bird Books website for this episode of Sex Gets Real, too, so that people can find it. Cool. Um, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with everyone how they can just stay in touch with what Rare Bird is putting out and what they're doing and how people can find more. Sure. Yeah. So we, our website is rarebirdbooks.com. Um, and then uh, we, we have, if you go on there, you can sign up for our e-newsletter. Um, and that's a good way to see what we're doing. I put that out once, once or twice a week, depending on my schedule. Um, and then um, we're on Twitter at RareBirdLit. We're on Instagram at RareBirdLit. Um, and then, and on Facebook, RareBirdLit. Um, and then I'm, I uh, am Pesty1079, P-E-S-T-Y-1079 on Twitter. And on Instagram, I usually yell about politics. So, you know, don't follow me if you don't <laughs> want to hear that. I'm not offended. Um, but but I, I also do, you know, tweet about what we're doing and things like that. Um, but yeah, so so those are the places to find us and me. Yeah. And then, um, and then yeah, uh, that's, that's it. That's pretty much it. That is it for my chat with Julia Callahan from Rare Bird. Make sure you head to sexgetsreal.com slash EP183 if you want to grab a link to check out their books. And of course, you know I'm constantly asking everyone to pay for their porn, pay for their sex education, pay for people's labor. When we've got small independent publishing houses like this, it's so important that we support them as well by going directly to them versus through some of the big online shopping experiences that a lot of us are addicted to. Uh, so please go to Rare Bird and buy books directly from them if you want to support the work that they're doing. So I'm going to close with this desperate email that I received from someone named Emily. So let's see where we end up. Hey, Dawn, my name is Emily. I am 25 years old and I live in Texas. I just recently discovered your podcast and I'm absolutely in love. 
I was listening to your show on cheating this morning, and I felt like I had to reach out to you. Here's my story. I've been with my current boyfriend for almost eight years. I was 18 when we got together. I had no earthly idea what love was or what it was like to be in a long-term relationship. Long story short, his life was not together at all when we met. No job, suspended driver's license, etc. He also moved in with me when I was 18, and we've lived together since. Mind you, I had no idea of so many of these things when we first met. Fast forward a few years down the road, and he has his life together, and I'm really proud of him. He's not always been the best faithful. I don't think he's ever cheated on me physically, but he has talked to other women online, and it hurt me badly. I always forgave him. One day, I was probably 23 years old, I'm now 25, something drastically changed with us. We stopped having sex. We haven't had sex in almost four years. I have no desire to. I can hardly stand him touching me in any sexual way. He tries to constantly, and I always shoot him down. I thought maybe I just didn't need sex, but I quickly found out I do, just not with him. So I did a thing I never thought I'd do. I cheated. Yes, Don, I cheated. A lot. Back in 2015, I began going on dating sites looking for someone who gave me those butterflies and someone I could feel sexually wanted by and someone that I sexually wanted. In a two-year time span, I probably slept with 15 men. Did I feel guilty? Of course. However, I learned quickly that I was also being used by these men. They just wanted sex, and I wanted a mental connection. So I'd feel terrible when these men would ghost me, but I'd still be on the prowl, trying to heal what the previous man did to me. Despite these men screwing me over, they made me feel so sexy, something I never thought I'd feel. I'm a curvy woman, not small by any means, so I've always been self-conscious of my body. Mind you, I was still living and together with my boyfriend, He works shift work, so a lot of the time I'd go out when he was working nights. There was an occasional man or two that I seriously thought I could have a meaningful relationship with, but I couldn't get together with them because it had to be when I could leave the house because of my boyfriend. So because I had to make up excuses, they took it as a sign that I wasn't interested, and they'd eventually find someone else. It killed me. Several of my friends say, why don't you just leave him? But I can't. I love him to death, and I can't imagine my life without him. But I'm not sure I'm in love with him anymore, and I'm scared we're too far gone. Do I want a relationship with him? Yes. Do I want to have sex with him? Yes. But I can't force myself to do it. It feels torturous when I even think about sex with him, and I don't know why. I'm not religious, but I do pray to someone or something to give me guidance on what to do. Am I crazy, Dawn? I've never admitted to him that I've cheated, but I'm pretty sure he has an idea. I'm almost positive he's done the same. We do love each other, and we talk about our future a lot. I'd love to have one with him, but I'm addicted to the attention and the affection that I get from other men that I don't have with him. Any help would be appreciated. Thank you. So I just want to say, Emily, thank you for writing in to me with your story and everything that you've been through. It's intense. It's a lot. It's messy. And 
I think the only way forward is going to involve some serious work and some seriously hard feels. So a lot of what I'm reading in your email here has been avoiding responsibility and avoiding difficult conversations, avoiding asking for what you really wanted, avoiding coming to terms with what it is that you're looking for and then kind of following through on that. I'm wondering when you say you love your boyfriend and you want to be with him, what that love looks like for you. Is it a love because you're afraid of being alone? Is it love because there's something he's offering you that you can't find other places? Because what I'm reading here is you're in relationship with someone that you're mistreating over and over and over again. And you even said that there were one or two men that you thought you could have a meaningful relationship with. And then they didn't think that you were serious because you were living with your boyfriend. And so they didn't take it seriously. If you would have entered into relationships with these guys, if they had taken you seriously, then what it sounds like to me is you're so scared of being alone that you'd rather consistently mistreat and hurt someone until you have a guaranteed opportunity to be in relationship with someone else so that then you have an excuse to leave them without having to face the possibility of being on your own. So I think you need to sit down and have some really deep conversations with yourself. My first thought is you cannot continue doing what you're doing. The, the damage that you're doing, I think, just to the relationship you're in is pretty intense. And it's not that relationships can't come back from infidelity and betrayal. They absolutely can. But the only way to come back from that is for the person who's doing the betraying to atone and to apologize and to stop the harming and to start being really upfront and working with what actually needs to happen for this relationship to be something that you can be in. If you're repulsed by your boyfriend to the point where you just don't want him to touch you and you don't want to have sex with him and he's constantly trying to touch you, that's also really hurtful to both of you. The rejection for him must be terrible. And I think that's another piece that you really need to confront. Everything that I'm hearing here is not that you love your boyfriend. It's that you're scared of being alone and you don't really know what you want or who you are. And so staying in this feels comfortable because you've been there for so long. So personally, I think what you need to do is end things with your boyfriend. And then I think you need to do some, some work on yourself to really figure out who you are and what you want and what you bring to the table what kind of a relationship you want to be in. Maybe it's a non-monogamous relationship, which is totally fine, but non-monogamy is ethical. It's not cheating. And in order to be in an ethical situation, you have to be able to manage the different relationships that you're in because you know that they're going to impact the people around you. 
So you have to be able to make choices that are healthy for you and the other people in your life. Otherwise, it's just going to be constant chaos. And I think some of that chaos is coming from the fact that you don't know how to ask for what you want. You don't know how to set strong boundaries. You don't know that you bring something to the table. And so without having that knowledge, it's easy for people to ghost you and to leave and to take advantage. And we don't have to love ourselves in order for others to love us. We don't have to love ourselves in order for others to treat us with dignity and respect. You can demand respect and you can demand that someone treats you like a human being, even if you don't feel like you're sexy or wanted. But that's work that you have to do yourself. And so this is a big, long, complicated mess. And I think that it has to start with you being very clear that you have been lying consistently for four years to someone who's important to you and that you don't want them to touch you. And when you say, I love this person, what does love mean? What I'm hearing is a fear of taking responsibility. And that's not to say we can't love people and hurt them, but at this point what I'm what I'm hearing is either you're really not monogamous and you've been avoiding having that conversation or you just really 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 don't want to be in this relationship and you're looking for any way that you can to feel something and so you're actively destroying it kind of subconsciously to avoid having to have that scary conversation. And so the only way that I see forward for you is to have that scary conversation of this is not working. You deserve better. And I deserve to be someplace where I'm happy. And this is not it. And moving on from the relationship and grieving and kind of really diving deep into why you've been doing these things and what it is that you need moving ahead so that you don't treat future relationships the way that you've treated this one. It can be really hard when we've done things that we feel guilty about and we don't feel good about, especially when we feel like we aren't enough, like we are the broken ones, especially when we're in a marginalized body or identity, you know, being fat, the world tells us we will never be wanted and never be good enough. And so it can be really, it can be really um, arousing and alluring to kind of chase that feeling when we've so deeply believed we're never going to be wanted. But there's a lot of work and a lot of kind of coming to self that I think you need to do, Emily, because it sounds like you've completely abandoned yourself in all of this. So it's okay if you have feelings of anger and grief and shame and and all of those things, you know, it's part of the process of making mistakes and growing and learning. You can take all of these experiences and all of this information and use it to expand what's possible in the future. But what you're doing now sounds absolutely toxic. And so I think your first step is to remove yourself from all of the situations that you're in and to really start doing some work for you. So I hope that's helpful. 
Um, I know that you wrote in saying you were desperate and I'm sure that wasn't what you wanted to hear, but that's, that's my opinion based on, on everything that you've shared. So thank you to everybody who's listening and thank you to Emily for writing in. That was a really tough one. Of course, all of you, if you want to help me weigh in on questions, head to patreon.com slash sex gets real. Also check out rare bird lit and I will be back next week. Bye.